0: May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. It's hard to read tone and vocal inflection in words on a page, isn't it? We probably have all had that experience of dashing off a quick email or a text message to someone only to realize later that you included an insufficient number of exclamation points. (laughs) Exclamation points in communication now are sort of the universal sign that I do not mean you ill will. I read recently that's at least one of the reasons why teenagers use the acronym LOL, laughing out loud. So often in their communication, it's because text messages don't communicate nuance. And you want to be sure that your friends understand that you're not upset with them, even if you're not actually laughing out loud. So they pepper even moments of standard normal conversation with LOLs or emojis to make sure there is no confusion. Paul, of course, who wrote so many letters to so many churches, did not have the advantage of the LOL. He was an expert, however, at conveying his meaning in the written word. So when we hear this morning from the first of his two letters to the church in Corinth that Paul wrote, we have to remember that Paul knows the Corinthians very well. He lived in the city. He worked there as a tent maker while regularly preaching in the local synagogue and laying the foundation for the first church that he planted in the town. And while he did eventually move on, he knew the people and the place through firsthand experience. And that's why when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he can do it with such clarity of purpose. Because he knows exactly who is reading his words on the other end of his letter. And they know him as well. The emphasis that he places on his love for this little church and for all the people of God comes through. So at the opening of this section in chapter 2, Paul starts with a flashback. He wants the believers in Corinth to remember how it all began. When I came to you, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, you, of course, are used to hearing proclamation that does not include lofty speech or wisdom. So you may relate to the Corinthians. But Paul has made this choice about how to preach the gospel in the bustling little port city that he arrived in. He didn't lean on his credentials or on showmanship, but on the cross and the Messiah who was nailed to it. He goes on, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, of course, Paul does have all the credentials you could ask for in a teacher. As he wrote to the Philippians, he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul has every professional and personal qualification you could ask for. Yet he wants to be sure the Corinthians remember that if many in their community have come to faith in Jesus Christ, it is not because of Paul's clever words. Or because he somehow was able to undercut the pagan religions they had previously followed. Instead, it is Jesus, the crucified Messiah, that they have been drawn to. Now, while he does have all the qualifications, Paul was not exactly out of central casting when it comes to preaching the good news of Jesus in a Greek town, in a place like Corinth, where there was every vice imaginable, available for the right price, and there were plenty of people with plenty of money to acquire those services, Paul found success. But it was not because he fit the stereotype of the Greek communicative ideal. He was not the dynamic, compelling speaker with a skillful presentation built around his winning personality. We know these kind of characters because of course they're still around, You might think of those advertisements for miracle cleaning products that come on late at night on cable TV, or perhaps of Harold Hill and the Music Man trying to convince innocent Midwesterners to invest their hard-earned money in instruments and uniforms for a marching band that will never exist, or fast-talking Southern preachers who like clever alliteration and references to theologians you've never heard of. There's a reason that kind of approach, crowd-pleasing as it is, persists. And that's because it works. Instead of rolling into town triumphantly, as he might have, to sell snake oil, Paul comes to Corinth by himself, in need of supporters, and apparently concerned for his safety. The Corinthians were well-known because of their infatuation, with the pursuit of deeper wisdom. They wanted to know things that would unlock the secrets of the world. In sort of the modern parlance, we might think of them as a whole town full of people eagerly reading every best-selling self-help book that comes out on the market. That's at least one explanation for why there was this culture of public religious debate in the town. They wanted to hear new things put in a new way that they had never heard before. But Paul apparently resolved not to win them over with his clever words. Otherwise, the Corinthians would only keep coming back until he ran out of clever words. It's a little bit like, as parents, why you don't give your children ice cream for breakfast. He doesn't give them the empty, sugary goodness that they were used to. He gives them vitamins and minerals. He gives them Jesus and his cross. And yet, somehow, despite all expectations to the contrary, the Corinthians were coming to faith in Christ. In fact, as it happened, for many of them, their faith was growing deeper, They were becoming not just interested observers of this new religion, but disciples of Jesus. They were turning their lives over to him and learning what it meant to live as he did. Their church was growing in numbers and vitality, and miracles were starting to happen among them. And that's why Paul is writing. All of this happens because he steadfastly refused to do anything but keep talking about Jesus Christ, the crucified Messiah. Now that all feels completely counterintuitive. Imagine a Super Bowl commercial that focused on the trial and violent execution of the CEO of the company whose product was being advertised. That's no way to win friends and influence people. Where is the novelty? Where is the slick marketing plan Where's the surprising twist that catches your attention and sticks in your mind? Have it your way or just do it. Those are the kind of slogans that really stick with you. Jesus Christ and him crucified does not have quite the same ring. Paul knows, of course, a thing or two about clever words. It does seem further down like he's preparing to break out the Greek thesaurus and spin things a little more positively, he goes on to say, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So Paul uses this word wisdom, which would have set some ears tingling. Just as the Corinthians had been used to hearing, he says he does teach wisdom, but it's not what they're used to. Not the wisdom of their age. It's only for those who are ready. Because what Paul teaches belongs to the new age and the new creation, not the old. This new age has been brought about by the cross and is not attainable through any kind of philosophical speculation or discipline that might be available through human effort. It is the gospel of God revealed through the death of Jesus. And if it is presented in a way that is shockingly direct, that is because it is like nothing else. The Corinthians want to understand how the world works, and Paul says the cross is that explanation. The cross is what turns all other kinds of human knowledge into foolishness. The cross is the thing. He goes on that those who rule the world are doomed to pass away. And that's because God's own rule must be clearly established above all things. That's the plan that God ordained before the creation of the world to establish divine sovereignty over everything. And that rule of God is not grounded just in knowledge, but in love. We relate to God through love. And the cross shows us What the love of God is like when it takes on flesh and blood. The cross is God's love for us brought into action. It is the cross that relativizes all human boasting and confidence and pride. And it is the cross that exposes the foolishness of what we call wisdom. Because it's the cross that tells the ultimate truth about the depth of our selfishness And the depth of God's love. This is the genius that Paul has as a communicator. He employs this language of wisdom which would have been very familiar to his hearers. And he turns it around to make that breathless pursuit of wisdom for personal advancement into just one more opportunity to talk about the power of Jesus Christ. Paul is willing to take every argument possible captive for the sake of the gospel. He's willing to use whatever tools are available. He's a little bit like a very skilled musician who can pick up any instrument and get a decent tune out of it, even if he or she has never played it before. Paul goes on, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. He is not able to understand them, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is a crucial distinction, because the message of the cross comes to us, not through philosophical reasoning, but through God's direct revelation. It's not a product of the human mind, but of God's design for our salvation. And it's the Holy Spirit who breaks through and makes clear the wisdom of God to our darkened human hearts. When you and I pray for wisdom or for discernment or guidance of any kind, our prayer is that the Holy Spirit would speak and reveal the mind of the Lord to us. So Paul hits the Corinthians with this truth. Those who have received the Holy Spirit, those who have placed their lives in the hand of the Lord, can know the mind of God. But that is not given to us as another way to boast in our wisdom, like the Corinthians might have expected to hear around the marketplace in their own town. But it is a statement of faith in God's goodness. And of our own solidarity with the suffering of Jesus. And that's because for Paul, to have the mind of Christ is to have the mind of the crucified and rejected Messiah. To know the mind of Christ is to be willing to share his commitment and offer the same kind of sacrifice. To know his mind and share his wisdom is to be imprinted with the nails and the spear and the crown of thorns. To be his disciple, as Paul was, means that one must resolve to know Jesus first, last, and always as the one who was willing to bear the cross and face its shame for the sake of love. Now, it's true that the wisdom of the cross is just as foolish now as it ever was In Paul's day. But because we are so familiar with the particulars of this story, I think we sometimes forget just what a strange thing it is to believe that God entered the world that he created and was willing to suffer and die for the sake of that world. But that is the Christian proclamation. That's what draws us together more than anything else. Such a proclamation has to sound like foolishness in a world where the primary values seem to be get rich or die trying, be cruel to others before they have a chance to be cruel to you. And the meek can inherit the earth if they're willing to fight us for it. But the cross is foolish wisdom that we proclaim. When held up to the cross of Christ, those other ways of living cannot help but pale in comparison and be revealed for the lies that they are. I've said to you before, there's a reason that no one you know practices the Roman household paganism that was common in the first century. And it's not because following the crucified Jewish Lord, Jesus of Nazareth, was so overwhelmingly attractive It was because the followers of Jesus were so committed to loving their neighbors as an extension of their proclamation of the crucifixion of their Lord, because they believed in the suffering Messiah who suffered willingly alongside his creation. And that witness meant that eventually the neighbors of those first Christians started to wonder what was causing such an overflow of love from these Christians even for those from other religions or who had no faith at all. It actually annoyed the Romans greatly that they could not compel their citizens to treat others with the kindness that Christians treated complete strangers with. It is following the wisdom of the cross that made all of that possible. Like Paul, you and I, most days, are disciples of Jesus. And we are proclaimers of his gospel and his cross. Most of us do it with our lives and how we treat others, not with actual words. Our lives are the letters that are written, that show what we believe. So if your life was translated into words... What would it say about the foolish wisdom of following Jesus? What does your life tell others about the cross? Amen.